0: Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts, thought leaders and authors who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's Pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year, and Muse, the amazing brain-sensing headband. That gives you real feedback on your meditation practice. Join me or my co-host, Ariel Garten, co-founder of Muse, each week. This year on Meditation Studio, you'll see new meditation collections for motivation, deep sleep with music, goodnight kiddo sleep meditations for your kiddos, a singing bowl collection, and a new course that will guide you to deepen your practice. This is all in addition to the 500 meditations you get on everything from stress, anxiety, happiness, confidence, relationships, and more. And don't forget, you can enable Meditation Studio Now on Alexa. Today, we're encoring two podcasts all about love and relationships. We hope you enjoy them. Today, I interview Sharon Salzberg, one of the leading meditation teachers in the world and author of 10 books. We talk about her latest book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection, where she explores how to redefine our somewhat limited definitions of love in our culture. Real love, she shares, allows us to connect more deeply with ourselves, with others, and with life itself. Love is a capacity and ability we can cultivate and grow within ourselves. She shares three ways we can lean into love in our lives and how meditation helps. You may hear a few teeny blips from a poor phone connection. Sharon was at her retreat center in Lenox, Mass., but you'll definitely hear many jewels of wisdom. Now, here's Sharon. Sharon, thank you so much for being on Untangle today. It's such a privilege to be able to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Yeah. So your book is called Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Can you tell me what you mean by real love and what inspired you to write this book?
1: What I mean by real love, not the easiest of questions in many ways, is really, I think, a state of profound connection. It's connecting to ourselves in a very different way. It's connecting to others. I I really see it as a kind of, a reclaiming of the word in, in the ways love has gotten so popularized, you know, in our our time as romance or I remember presenting this idea to somebody early on, somebody in the publishing world, and they said, Oh, the love market's really saturated mm. meaning the you know, the relationship market, how to find a relationship, how to fix a relationship may be saturated, but that's not really what I mean by love. I think I was inspired in part to write it because I, I think I I'm inspired and moved by the possibility of reclaiming words, taking words that have gotten in some way degraded or or used very differently. Like I wrote a book uh, some years ago on faith. And even my friends were puzzled. Like, why do you want to write a book on faith? Because for so many people, the word faith had come to mean being silenced or not being able to ask questions and losing self-respect and just giving in to the vision of life of another. And I didn't mean it mean that at all when I use the word faith. And so I wanted to help redeem the word. And I think the same is true of love. As much as we seek it and want it, I think it makes the world go round and all of that. We also struggle so much because I don't think we, we really understand it.
0: Do you think it's become, I don't know if the word frivolous is the right word, but when you talk about it being a state of profound connection, how is that different from how we generally think of love?
1: Well, I think the important insight I had uh, myself at one point, I was in Burma in the 80s, and I was doing an intensive retreat on the loving-kindness meditation, with mm-hmm. loving-kindness meditation, and I had this experience where prior to that, I realized I had always thought of love in some ways like a commodity. It was like a thing that could be in a package, and it was delivered unto me by someone else, but that also meant it could be taken away. And if somebody chose to take away the love, then I would be left with no love in my life. I would be bereft. And mm. uh, in the process of, of the meditation and I think some very, you know, strong introspection, I came to see, no, it's not outside of myself. It's within me. The love is a capacity, it's an ability. Inside me, we give away so much power by imagining love as like In the hands of the ups person you know
0: how do we you know sort of build or cultivate our capacity to experience real love for ourselves inside of ourselves
1: the first step in in some way is probably looking at the obstacles like what is challenging us and i keep coming back to the set of assumptions that we hold assumptions about ourselves about where strength really is about where happiness lies and about how alone maybe we really are, and you know, there's so many ways we can feel so isolated and cut off, and that don't reflect the truth of existence. You know, that in fact we do live in an interconnected universe, and we're not as alone as we sometimes think, and and all of that. And so, really being able to look carefully, you know, we're taught so many things and fed so many myths and even lies about the nature of things. You know, is is compassion, for example, really that weak? Does it leave you so deluded that you can't, you know, discern, uh, what correct action is. You just kind of stand there, you know, yeah. is anger, rage, vengefulness, really that strong, you know, and we take a look, we can, we can really see for ourselves and that's incredibly important.
0: Do you think that we have to have faith in the meditation practice to know that we will become more comfortable over time Um, Because people might, you know, they start meditating and, you know, at some point they may be, you know, they're frustrated or they get very restless or the results don't come as soon as they would like. And how does meditation work to help us get more comfortable with this, you know, batch of negative emotions? And then what in particular is happening in our meditation practice that is actually causing this to get better over time?
1: I don't know if it's a question of faith so much as that it's a question of first of all clarity so that you're not just like putting yourself down for things that are perfectly normal like many many people come into the meditative process feeling that or believing that the goal of meditation is to have a perfectly blank mind to get rid of all your thoughts and yeah to have like sublime peace all the time and and for us to say no you know the purpose of this style of meditation is not to get rid of your thoughts it's not to have only beautiful experiences because that's unrealistic but to be different with everything that comes your way to experience pleasure differently without so much clinging and fear and projection into the future like what if it goes away and to experience pain differently without so much isolation and and anger more spirit of compassion and in community and even to experience neutral experience, that kind of ordinary routine, repetitive thing that fills a lot of our day. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the time we usually numb out or we're half asleep. And to be different there, too, and actually come alive and, and be connected, um, that's all the possibility of training in, in meditation, and in mindfulness. That's why we do it. And it's not going to be one kind of experience. It's going to be every kind of experience. But you will be different with it. And, you know, how do we know to keep going? It can be as well, it's especially discouraging if you're looking in the wrong place for progress, <laughs> you know, and progress is happening yeah. all the way. And, right. And especially perhaps with something like loving kindness practice, which is its own methodology, I say over and over again, because I really believe that the proof of any progress will happen, but you won't necessarily see it in the. 10 or 20 minute period of your formal practice each day, you'll see it in your life. And I've known many instances where actually someone else sees it before we do, where people say to me, you know, I was going to stop meditating. I thought nothing was happening. I wasn't getting anything from it. And then my kids came to me and said, please don't stop. You're much better.
0: Right. And I've heard from some people, like when they go on silent retreat, for example, that you know your heart just kind of cracks open and you know i've had that experience too and then sometimes like we'll come home and feel more tender because our hearts have been open which is you know both good and difficult like what do you what do you tell people about this sort of experience of once we open our hearts when they've been closed or if they've been closed how do we live with that tenderness or how do we sit with that tenderness?
1: Well, the, you know, the ultimate goal is really a state of balance in that we're developing love, and loving kindness and compassion toward ourselves and others. It's not only about others, you know, it's also about ourselves. And there is a tenderness for sure, but there's also a strength and a, a kind of stability in seeing some of the ways maybe we've related prior to that growing understanding and ways we don't have to anymore. So
0: in the book, you talk about relationships and you've talked a little bit about this before you talk about relationships and that they're often built on the hope that the unconditional love of someone else will somehow magically heal our wounds and restore us to wholeness. Why do you think we have this, this belief? And, And I think most of us do.
1: You know, I think the the prevalent worldview, the kind of psychological philosophical assumption is that if we really knew who we were, it would be bad news, you know, and this is in contrast to say a more Asian view about Buddha nature, you know, that if you go underneath your habits and underneath your personality and underneath your immediate experience, you will find a capacity for growth, for change, for wisdom, for love that's never ever destroyed. And It may be covered over, it usually is, it may be hard to find, and it certainly may be hard to trust, but it's there. And there's nothing that we can go through that will make that not be true. And that's just a capacity, it's a potential. It's not to say it's gonna be realized in this lifetime, uh, but it's there. And so that's a very different sense than, you know, I am broken and I don't have this kind of innate capacity. I need something so fundamental from the world or from somebody else to even begin to feel whole. You know, it's a very different sense of who we are.
0: Does it have anything to do with the idea of sort of things being perfect or that, you know, perfection in some ways, our ideas about perfection keep us from really loving ourselves and others fully, or is that kind of a different concept?
1: No, and I think it's true, and it's it's perfection in all kinds of different ways. We don't even know it's perfect, you know? Now I often tell the story about going to washington, d c to teach. And one year somebody got me to the the basin, you know, the area with the great many uh, cherry trees. It was cherry blossom season. And we actually like got there, which was like a big ordeal in terms of scheduling and things like that. But you know, we're standing there, and I just thought it was so beautiful, just, These exquisite delicate pink blossoms, which I just thought were were so lovely. And then my friend said, Oh no, it's past the peak. And I thought, Oh no, I'm having a bad experience. This isn't good enough, right? I've been perfectly happy two and a half minutes before, you know, and suddenly it wasn't good enough because someone else said so. And so how do we define perfection? How do we know when something's perfect? By whose standards and you know, how old are those standards and how relevant are those standards? And And then that also brings up the great question of self-compassion, you know, self-compassion in contrast to self-esteem doesn't come up in times of triumph or, you know, like if you learned how to play tennis and you never thought you could, you might have a greater sense of self-esteem. That's great. And we certainly don't, most of us don't tend to spend enough time kind of enjoying or reveling in our capacities, you know, and learning and self-compassion is yet another thing apart from that self-compassion doesn't come up when we're feeling great it comes up when we've made a mistake and when we've blown it and we've fallen down and you know we've lost sight of what we really care about and you know how do we relate to ourselves then is the issue and and to realize that first of all nobody's perfect and that whatever we've done it's not to say you know a lot of people confuse self-compassion with laziness and if you talk about it, they accuse you of condoning laziness and not seeking excellence. And it's like resilience. It's the best way to go on. It's the best way to make a change in your life. And it's the best way to learn something is to have some compassion for yourself so that when you have blown it, you don't have to spend the next year and a half just being down on yourself, you know, you can pick yourself up and start over and yeah. make amends if you need to or learn something new if you need to, but keep on going. And, and so... Uh, it's a great strength and, and it's hard because we think we should be perfect and we don't realize that the greater strength, you know, rather than that kind of fruitless striving is, isn't having compassion for ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I believe that so completely. So we've talked a little bit about compassion practices, but what, what are some of the really, you know, the other mindfulness practices that you you teach to cultivate this kind of real love, this internal real love for ourselves?
1: Well, a lot of it has to do with a kind of attention training, you know, so that, for example, if you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're not really listening to them and you're not really looking at them because you're too distracted and you're thinking about the email you need to send or you're very fragmented, you know, you can't let go of what just happened before you walked in the door and there's not going to be kind of the ground or the the context for uh, a real kind of connection to arise. And so just like in meditation, we learn to gather our attention and to more fully be in the moment. And when we've lost it, and we will, you know, and our minds go everywhere, we realize that and we let go gently and we start over. It's like we keep coming back. Mm -hmm. And it's in that process of really listening, really looking at somebody, really being there, that the possibility of genuine connection can grow. I tell the story in the book about a friend of mine who's a writer who uh, was touring in the Midwest, and he gave a a lecture somewhere uh, at a church, and during the course of the lecture, he mentioned how much Proust and remembrances of things past had influenced him as as a younger man. after the lecture, he was in a restaurant somewhere having dinner, and this woman came up to him and his first impression of her was that, oh, she looks sort of probably poorly educated and maybe not very smart and, you know, kind of dumpy. And and then she came up to him and she said, I was at your lecture. And his heart sort of sank like, oh, she's going to criticize me or she wouldn't have understood it or something. And, and then she said, I loved your lecture. I just want to say that... I find that reading Proust in the original French is much more fulfilling. Look at how we categorize people. We dismiss people. We put them down. We're scornful. But we don't really look at people or hear them. And therefore, we don't recognize them for who they are.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. And we we do tend to judge. And I love what you say about you know, having the capacity to experience real love and even the smallest of connections when we're, when we can open to those connections and, and put away our judgment. So I think that's, that's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved like at the, at the end of your book and you list some of the takeaways from each of the sections Mm -hmm. in the book. I mean, this book is just so rich with great content and I pulled some of my favorite ones. If I read, a few of these to you, will you just comment on them? That would be great. So the first one is we can find freedom from the negative stories we tell ourselves.
1: Yes. I mean, the the critical ingredient is seeing or hearing them. you know, so we're not just under sway of, of this kind of half unconscious voice, but, but we really can see, oh yeah, that's, you know that's a habit that's an old conditioning, whatever it might be, and always to be able to look at those things with love for ourselves mm-hmm.
0: and then you talk about forgiveness as a path to peace and a powerful element of love for ourselves and others. I think forgiveness is such a big theme for so many people
1: yes it's it's a very difficult concept. um people mean so many things by that sometimes people confuse forgiveness with condoning and like saying, oh, what happened didn't matter. And maybe it mattered quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not that at Mm -hmm. all, but it's a question of being able to be resilient, to to be present all parts together, you know, rather than uh, being so stuck in in something that might really be a long time ago.
0: Right. So getting out of our stuckness. Yeah. So this is our sort of Final question. Approaching our life with a sense of adventure is always available to us no matter where we are. What are three ways? And you you talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, which I will say over and over again that I highly recommend. But what are three ways that we can lean with love? And then you also have a phrase where you say, say yes to life.
1: Uh, I think we can consciously try to pay attention to what we have to be grateful for, which may take some intentionality for a lot of people. It certainly does for me. I think my natural inclination is more like to think about what I can complain about. And, and it you know, I have to like move my mind. Say, well, what about that? What about that aspect? And kind of along those same lines, look for the good in ourselves because that's there too, as well as our flaws or faults or whatever. And then I think Uh, There are two reflections that are really useful. One is remembering that everybody wants to be happy. Everybody really does want to be happy. We want a sense of belonging somewhere in this life. We want a sense of being a part of something greater than our limited sense of self. But we have very different views and conditioning about where happiness is to be found. But everybody wants to be happy. And the other part of that is that everybody is vulnerable We don't all share the same measure of pain, clearly, but everybody's vulnerable to change and to loss. And so these are the things that should bring us together rather than keep us apart.
0: God, I love that. So beautiful. Um, Sharon, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about the book before we close?
1: The book, let's see, the book has actually three sections. Um, The first is about love for oneself, which is not misguided it's not narcissism or or selfish the second section is about love for another which may be a partner may be a child may be a parent may be a pet mm-hmm. may be a colleague you know there're lots of possibilities and the third section is about love for all beings everywhere and that transmutes into love for life and it was a you know it was a powerful experience for me exploring all that and hearing from so many people and I think it's, it's quite the journey to go through.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so grateful. Well, thank you. Thanks so much to Sharon for all her wisdom. You can order a copy of her book at Amazon and all major booksellers. You will treasure this book, I promise. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia@meditationstudioapp.com. At and if you have a minute, will you rate us and review us? Every rating helps. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next week.